Well, I'd encourage you to turn with me, if you would, to Psalm 142. Psalm 142. You might see on the screen a title that seems very discouraging, When I Am Ready to Give Up. But I, I trust that today our time together will be anything but discouraging. I trust that you'll be encouraged by our time together today. My desire really is to try to minister God's word to you in a way that uh, encourages your soul and strengthens you today. This season is a season full of kind of opposing things for so many of us. It's a season where everyone, since about a month ago, has been broadcasting Christmas cheer. All over the stores, all over their faces, all over their cries for Merry Christmas and Happy Thanksgiving. And for many of us, it's not that way. It may be that you're just in a particular time of discouragement or despondency. It may be that you've been battling with something, with the Lord over something for some time now. And what you know should be a season of joy and excitement instead fills you with dread and discouragement. You look to the family gatherings coming up and you're not excited about it. You're slowly going towards those things because they feel like obligations, but you know what's in store for you. Maybe you're just in a particularly hard, tough area of life. This text speaks to people in a very realistic way. What I want to do is, before we jump in, to just kind of notice that there will be two groups of people here today. There are some of you today who, as you, as you hear this text read and as you listen to it preached, you'll say, that's exactly where I'm at. Now, if that's you today, you're going to have a danger in your spirit. And the danger will be this. I'm not going to hold out hope yet. Let me evaluate what God says and decide if it will be helpful for me. I understand that. The only thing worse than no hope is hope that then falls through. But let me just encourage you that you're in good hands with God. And as he speaks today, to trust him, to entrust yourself to him with your soul. And there's another group of people here today, and that would be people who say, I don't feel ready to give up. I'm fine. I'm doing okay today. Can I say that for you, right now is the time to begin to prepare your heart and to listen to God because there will come times like that. Life goes like that, doesn't it? It's never just a single line straight upwards. So wherever you find yourself today, I'd encourage you to listen carefully to God, to observe what he has to say, to put yourself underneath that, and in doing so, to find comfort and rest. Before we start, I do want to just make a few observations. Sometimes I feel like surveying the landscape is helpful. Maybe you've been on a hike before with a friend, and you start down, and they say, now we're going to go there, and then we're going to go over that ridge and round that corner, and just getting that mental picture in mind helps you when you then take the journey, and that's what I want to do today. So let me just observe a few things as we get started here. First of all, let me observe some observations about the, the nature of the psalm itself. Much of the psalm is a prayer. Isn't that true? If you look down, he starts, when I cry out to the Lord with my voice, and then he actually starts talking to God. So you see him address God directly. He says in verse 3, when my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you, that's God, knew my path. And he continues like that. He cried out, verse 5, to you, O Lord. At the end, even at the end of the section, for you, verse 7, shall deal bountifully with me. This is a prayer to God. We're entering into this prayer of David as he speaks to God. Secondly, David likely wrote this while he was on the run. Now, these superscriptions aren't necessarily inspired, but they're usually a very good guide. And this isn't actually the only one that he wrote. He wrote another one in Psalm 57. And in fact, I'd encourage you to write that down and go look at it later. And what it does is it pictures for us the kind of contrasting hearts that we can have in these scenarios. In Psalm 57, he's likely in the same scenario, but he sounds much more confident in God in that moment. Here you can see his hesitancy, his struggle to fight to say the right thing to God. 
And doesn't that picture how we go through these kinds of trials? Sometimes within the same hour, we'll start with real encouragement in God. God can do this. And 30 minutes later, we're discouraged and struggling and then back at it again. And this is a safe way to approach this. In other words, God is dealing with you realistically. Psalm 57, I forgot I had that up there for you, but you can write that down. Third, let me just point out that David's concern is generic. This seems likely to be in this cave where he's running, he's on the run, but he keeps it very generic, and that's, that's a grace to us, isn't it? Because you can take wherever you're at and plug it directly into Psalm 142. Look at things like verse 3, one of my spirit was overwhelmed within me, you knew my path. What path, David? He doesn't say. Or he says, like, in verse 4, even the most specific he gets here, he looks around, there's no one around him, refuge has failed him, no one cares for him. But again, we haven't gotten a lot of detail about exactly what's going on here. This is, again, a grace to us. And I'd encourage you then to hear your own story in this psalm. There's a sense in which we can read the Bible to where we're the only important thing, where we're the centerpiece, and that would be wrong. But it's also equally wrong to read it as if it's some separate thing that we just happen to get some help from. No, God actually wants to speak to you today. So I'd encourage you to put your concerns in this generic concern that David is himself expressing. Next, David's trouble is chiefly internal. As we read that text, you have heard that he talks about other people outside of him, but kind of the core of the issue is what he says at the end of verse 4. It says bluntly, no one cares for my soul. This kind of internal struggle, yes, it's the outside forces are hard to, to handle, but it's that that seems to be at the core of David's concerns, and we'll see God address those as we go. And then finally and lastly here, note that deliverance is still future. He doesn't write this from a perspective of victory where he knows all of what God is doing and now is basking in the joy of a perfect life. That's not what happens. He ends with verse 7. Listen to the way the verbs are said. Verse 7, bring my soul out of prison. That means he's still in prison, right? That I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me. You shall deal bountifully with me. So this is a very realistic, honest, genuine cry for help that's rooted in truth about God and is still waiting for future help. Can you see yourself in this psalm, in Psalm 142? God doesn't expect us to face trials with plastic smiles. He expects us to come to him like David does here in Psalm 142. So let's pray, and wherever you find yourself today experiencing this kind of battle or saying, you know, I have, but not right now, would you bow your heart before God and allow him to speak to you? Let's pray. God, we come to you and we're eager to have you speak. We're eager to listen to you. We're eager ourselves to put ourselves underneath you. Yet I know in a room this large that there are many who are facing something just like this today and are hesitant in their spirit. Because to, to reach for hope and then find you not enough is harder than just to ignore the hope altogether. So I pray that you would help us to not be like that, but instead to entrust ourselves to you. I pray that if there are any here today who do not find themselves in this position, that they would recognize the ministry they can have to others in this room and the importance of establishing these truths in their hearts now before trial and trouble comes. I pray that as we look at this word, that you would help us to put ourselves under it, to not run from application, but instead turn to you and entrust ourselves to your loving hands. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.
I want to draw your attention to the very first few verses. There will be three points, and they all start with P, if you're interested in alliteration. I'm okay with it, just if it happens. And it happens to be that we have them all starting with P. First of all, this plea, this cry to the Lord. Verses 1 through 3, he says, I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. And the way in which you walked, they have secretly laid a snare for me. This cry out to the Lord has several characteristics. And that's what I want to zero in on first. As we listen to him cry out to the Lord, first of all, I want you to note just the urgency with which he speaks. The original actually says it like this. With my voice, with my voice, I cry aloud. He puts it first in the sentence to, cry out, to, to emphasize just how important it is that he's reaching out to God with this kind of cry. It's also desperate. This word cry is not the normal word to shout out or to call out for help. It's a word that's used particularly when you're in deep distress and you need somebody to rescue you. It's only used five times in the Psalms. Some of those are in Psalm 22, depicting Christ himself on the cross crying out for help. This is somebody in acute distress and seeking deliverance. But notice he says, I cry to the Lord with my voice, or if we were to kind of phrase it in the same order, with my voice, I cry to the Lord. With my voice, I make my supplication known. And he says, I make my supplication. This word itself has at its root the benevolence of the person you're talking to. It's, a, it's an appeal to kindness. It's an appeal to God's character. And he says in verse 2, I pour out my complaint before him. I declare my words before him, my trouble. Now, we can hear complaint there is kind of whiny, that he's whining, but that's not the idea. The idea is that he has troubled thoughts, that the thoughts are stirring within him, and that's what he's bringing to God. Now, have you cried out to God like that? When have you done that? We all have, haven't we? It can be something like the trouble of a child in your home that is just out of control, and you don't know what to do next, or Maybe we're still a child that's grown up and gone away and your heart just every day aches for them. It could be some pain at work, some trial, some opposition from your, your boss, your manager, your fellow coworkers. It can just be the overwhelming responsibilities of life or maybe just the monotony of the routine and you look around and you feel you have too much on you but you can't let anything go because people are depending on you. These are the moments we reach out like this and say, I need help. Do you see sometimes the surface of your life, it just breaks through this cry, and that's exactly what's happening to David here. Maybe it's angst within your marriage or angst to be married. It could be debilitating sickness for you or a loved one, and you're just waiting all day for the doctor to call, knowing the answer will not be positive. Or like right now, every turn in life, you know there's something waiting for you there. Another surprise of the bad kind. These are the times we cry out like this. God deals calmly in comfort and deals in comfort with us. We looked at the urgency and the desperateness of the cry, but I want you to notice how just how personal it is as well. The personal nature of this cry. First of all, notice he says, I cry to the Lord with my voice, with my voice I make my supplication. Look at verse two. He says, I point, pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. If I were to translate that maybe more like word for word, it would say this before your face. It's a very visceral kind of phrasing. He's saying this, God, 
I'm pouring this out and you're watching with your eyes. God, you're looking at me. You know what's going on. You can see me. I pour out my complaint before him. Twice he says this, before your face. This word for pour out is again a very physical word. It's a word that's almost entirely used of people pouring things out on the ground like offerings themselves. And so putting it together, you get this idea that David brings his complaint before God and he pours it out in God's eyes. God can see it happen. He can, he can hear it splash on the ground. He's exposing himself to God and saying, God, I have to have your help. It's often used in temple sacrifices. And then lastly, at the end of verse 2, he says, I declare before him my trouble. This is a word that's used of messengers. Here he's pronouncing, God, I have to have your help. This is not some weak, feeble cry for help. This is a last desperate lunge for help. Some translations even say, I show him like a child taking your own trouble and bringing it to your father or your mother and laying it in front of them and saying, I have to have help with this. This is the cry, the nature of the cry that David brings. Now, how do you cry out to God? Could it be that this is actually at the starting point of us saying, maybe I need to make some adjustments. Now, the reality is, does God know your concern? Yes. Psalm 139 says he knows your thoughts before you think them. As the, the, the phone call happens, as the news comes, he already knows what you're going to think. So why do we need to cry like this? Why do we need to verbalize it? It's not for God. It's for us. The act of crying out is an act of submission. It's saying, God, I need you. I need your help. I can't do it. This is an act of deep submission. How do you picture God, though, when you come to him like that? Is God in need of being convinced that you need his help? No, I think often it's actually our picture of God that is the trouble here, isn't it? We come to God and we think, I don't know if he wants to hear this again. It's the same thing I asked yesterday 10 times and the same thing 20 times the day before. But God doesn't tire of you. No, he knows you. So what concerns do you bring to him in prayer? We could say it like this. What you don't tell God tells you a lot about what you think of God. God says, bring your cries to me. And the psalmist paints this picture of this path of viscerally laying them out before the Lord. In addition to the characteristics we've already seen, it's also a very honest plea, isn't it? I mean, this is a heart fully exposed kind of plea. He's not holding anything back. One translation, rightly, I think, interprets or translates the beginning of verse 3 like this, when I am ready to give up, which is why I titled the sermon that way. It says, when my breath left me. It's this picture. Whenever you do this, that's the moment. That's what he's saying. When this happens, when I'm ready to give up, when my spirit leaves me, when my breath goes out of me like that. It's in this moment, he's saying he's overwhelmed. It's like this breathing out, this panting because of the pressure on him. God, really, he's the one person you can be fully honest with because he already knows and he still loves you. But it is this moment 
this moment of letting this breath out where David says, God, I entrust myself to you. And there's a difference, isn't there, between knowing that God can help you and actually saying, God, I want your help. You have to picture, as a dad myself, God's perspective on us sometimes, where he can see our trouble and our trial and our struggle. And you can see him waiting because he's watching us. It's before his face. And we keep saying, I'll do it. I'll do it myself. I'll do it myself. And what happens, parents, when your child finally says, Dad, I need your help? You already knew that, but they needed to know that and express it. And what do you do? You run to them. It's exactly what David is saying God will do to him. He says that when he was ready to give up, he says, then you knew my path. Now, if you're in the habit of writing in your Bible, I'd actually encourage you to double underline that you. Because he doesn't just say you knew it. He says you yourself knew it. He doubles it up. God, you, you, you yourself, you knew it. You knew my path. This is his likely talking about just his way of life, his walking path. It's like this. God, I'm laying my trouble out before you so you can see it with your eyes. But you've been watching me move through life. You've been watching me. You know what they said to me. You know the phone call I got. You know the, the doctor's appointment again we went to. And no good news. God knows, like Psalm 139 tells us, are rising and are sitting. He saw the responsibilities placed on you. God sympathizes, though. This knowledge doesn't make him aloof and distant. Now, he knows it not just from the outside. Think who we're talking to. We're talking to someone who came, sent Jesus Christ, God himself, who suffered on this very earth the same kind of pains you face day in and day out. Hebrews 4 says that that gives us someone, a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us. This is the knowledge that God has of us. You yourself know my path. And I think that double meaning the New Testament helps us fill in. It's not just that God saw our path. It's that Jesus walked our path. You know it, God. You're coming to someone who's faced those challenges. He's both seen your steps and he stepped them before. This plea is all-encompassing, right? You can see the man's heart just open before the Lord. But it still leads us to ask that same question, is that how we come to God? And it actually starts with this level of transparency, desperateness, urgency, personalness, honesty, to say, God, I need you. Because help can't come to you when you hold God at a distance. This plea is followed up then by the true problem. This true problem is that no one cares. No one cares. Now, it's one thing to face trial. It's one thing to face trouble with help and with support and with friends, and I hope you have that here. It's a totally different thing to face it totally alone. But this is his feeling, that nobody really cares for him. There's this impending attack that he's waiting for because there's opposing forces coming against him. Verse 4 says, look on my right hand and see, either talking to God himself or uh, perhaps talking to himself. I'm sorry, uh, beginning of the end of verse 3. In the way in which I walk, they've secretly set a snare before me. Look at my right hand and see, for there's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. 
No one cares for my soul. The end of verse 3, he says it like this. As I'm walking, you could say it like that. As I'm walking on my path, he says that there's something happening. They, this ambiguous they, we don't know who it is. Could be Saul and his, his, uh, his uh, armies. They, we find at the end of verse 3, have secretly set a snare for me. This secretly tells us that there's this deliberate plotting against him. He has forces against him he can't control. This snare word is hunter terminology. They're tracking him down. This impending attack then is deliberately vague, but it's deliberately applicable to us. He knows it's almost like every day he wakes up, the next step is this, is this the next one? Is this the next blow? Is that the next blow? This problem is that no one cares for him. But the worst thing, like I mentioned, is this core of it, complete abandonment. It's not just that there's opposition from the outside. It's that those who should be on the inside aren't there to support him. This complete abandonment. And then he turns, like I said, either to God or perhaps just to us as readers. Look, look at my right hand and see. There's no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. No one cares for my soul. This command is a command to us and it's a command to God and note that he tells us to look to his place of support the place where he should find help the right hand the right hand man is where you turn to for help but when he turns there there's no one there's no one he says on my right no one acknowledges me no one regards me then he ends like this in verse four no one regards or provides me refuge The way this is phrased is he says it like this. Refuge has failed me. If I were to kind of, again, go word for word here, what he's saying is refuge is lost to me. That's the word he uses. It's lost. In other words, I used to have it. I thought I had it, and I turned to my right when I needed it, and I've lost it. It's not there. I don't have the help I need. Worst of all, perhaps most directly so, he says this, no one cares for my soul. This word cares for is the word that's usually used for something, somebody seeking out somebody else. This word for soul is the word for what we might say, the real you, the core of who you are. It's like this. He says, people ask how I am, but nobody really asks, no, but how are you? Are you okay? Are you doing okay? No one's seeking after that. It's one thing to face trial, isn't it? But it's a different thing to face it like this. And you can see why this is the core of his complaint. It's that he's alone. He's abandoned. He's desperate. In these moments, he turns to God. And not in any kind of Pollyanna, everything's happy, nothing's the matter, I'm fine, everything's fine way. He says this, God, you are my portion. You're enough. You are enough. And you can hear him almost telling himself this as much as he's writing it down for us. He's telling himself this as much as he's telling God. God, I know this is true. And isn't this how we have to face these trials, right? We face them just like that. God, I know this is true. I had a friend recently who told me that for years now, they struggled with infertility. That's one of these kinds of trials, isn't it? Because you're alone. You may not want to share it. People make little comments here and there. They come along and they make jokes. And each time, it hurts more and more and more. And who do you turn to? Who can you tell? Perhaps even those who do know try to offer help. Help that's not helpful. 
These are those kinds of moments, aren't they? The psalmist, David himself, encourages us, look to God for your portion, for your help. And notice in verse 5, he says, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge. And now for the second time, he's used this phrase, this word for cry. He says, I cry out in distress. This is a repeated cry. He mentions, he says, I cried out to you, O Lord. And notice, do you notice anything about that word, Lord? It's in all caps. This tells us this is God's personal name, Yahweh. A name that doesn't just mean he exists, as in there's other gods who don't exist. It means that he's here. He's right here. He's present. He's the self-existent one who is here. You, O Lord, he says, I cried out to. And I said, you are my refuge. This is a place of protection where you can go when you need that protection and help and life. And he also calls God something else. He says, you are my refuge. You are my portion in the land of the living. This is a word that was used when the people went into Canaan and claimed land. They were given actual allotments of land that, were, that was their family's land, their tribe's land. And what he's saying is, God, you're my land. You're all I need. You are enough. I have you. That's what he's saying. You, God, you are my refuge. You're my portion in the land of the living. This phrasing, again, one translation um, put it this way. that You are all I want. You're all I want. You're all I need. You're all I need for my portion. Like I mentioned, Psalm 16, verse 5, says it like this. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. You, God, you're my portion. Like I mentioned, it's you're all I want. Now, before we move forward to this final point about the prospect of looking to God's answer, let me just encourage you to look to God as your refuge like this. And how is God a refuge to us like this? He has ministries to us in these moments. The first one I'm going to encourage you with from this own psalm is this ministry of presence. God's like this for us by just being there. He's seen everything that's happened to you. He's heard every word that's been spoken to you. He's been there each time you've gotten new news that's discouraged you. When you wake up in the night, he's there. He's never asleep. He hears those thoughts. He, he sees those dreams. This is exactly what Jesus comforts us with in Matthew chapter 28 when he says, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's not just presence, though. It's consistency. When you turn to your right hand, you want to know he's always there. And that's what David is saying about God. God, you are like a plot of land. You never move. And you're mine. God, you are my refuge, my tower. You're always there. God's a refuge to us by this ministry of presence and consistency. Jesus himself is said to never change, to always be the same yesterday, today, and forever, like Hebrews 13 says. But it's also not just somebody who's there and somebody who can be consistent, but somebody who can do something about it. And that's exactly what God is. God's a God of power and of care. He can and will protect his own. There's an Old Testament text that you probably know well, but you may not know the context. The text goes like this. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, nor I has seen a God besides you who acts to the, for those who wait for him. That's from Isaiah 64. Isaiah 64 is a meditation on what God will do to defend his own. 
Maybe when you read those sections here about people having it out for you, maybe that's for you. You say, now that's, I know what that feels like. That's what I feel like right now. Especially in those situations. I want you to listen to that whole context. I'll start at verse 1 of chapter 64. Where the writer describes God and vengeance coming down and making all things right so that I don't have to. Vengeance is God's. Listen to this. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries. And that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard what you're going to do for those who wait for you. That kind of fiery presence of God is coming against those who might oppose us. So it's okay. It's okay, God. You see, you know, you are my refuge. You're there, you're consistent, and you can do something about it. This is why he says of God, God, you are more than enough. Finally, let me encourage you with this prospect. He gives God some commands. He gives God some commands. This is a man who speaks frankly and openly to God. Verse 6, he says, Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name. The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. These three commands... He simply says this, first of all, pay close attention to my cry, to my lament. There's that word again. Pay close attention to me. He's already said, God, this is before your eyes. You can see it. But now he says, God, zero in on this. Pay attention to what's happening to me. And we can see there him going to God as his refuge. Seeing in God someone who is there. Someone who can pay attention and listen to him. Tend to my cry, for I am brought very low. And again, in that moment of honesty, it's also a moment of submission, isn't it? Say, God, I am low. I need you. Secondly, he says, deliver me. Deliver me from this. Deliver me from others. Again, we don't know the particular scenario. Likely, if this has to do with the cave, then that is part of the scenario here. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. But even there, you can see that he's submitting to the thing that God has put in his path. God, this has forced me to you. One of the paths that you watch has been the path of me slowly getting crowded into where you're the only one I have left. There's no one else. So deliver me. Rescue me from my persecutors. I can't do it. I can't do it anymore, God. Finally, he says, bring me out of prison. Now, this likely has either a physical or metaphorical sense here. Now, he's likely in a cave running from Saul, and so he may literally just mean, get me out of this place. I'm tired of being in the cave. That's possible. But I think it's more than that. If you look back at verse 7, he says, bring. He doesn't say me, right? He could have said that. What does he say? Bring my soul out of prison. This is that same word he used earlier for the real me, who I really am. Bring that out of prison. Because isn't that what this feels like? It feels like being in prison. There's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to turn. And he says, God, you're going to have to come in. Take me and take me out of this prison. I need you to do that. Take the real me out. So he does have somebody who cares for the real me, doesn't he? He does have somebody who cares for his soul. And it's God himself. So he says, God, see me. 
Deliver me and come take me out of this place, this prison. Notice though, before God even does this, he tells God, here's what I'm going to do, God. If you do that, I'm going to thank you. Ahead of time, I'm telling you right now, you will get the praise. You will get the credit. He says that I may praise your name, your character, everything that it is that you are, I will praise. You can note that this praise is whole and genuine because he knows he's not doing any of it. God is. God's doing it. I want you to know a special little grace of God in the final two phrases of this text. Because his big complaint, his core complaint has been what? Not just that he's had trouble, but that he's had trouble while being completely alone. But notice what he says. Again in the future, but already he's turning his eyes to that future hope. His future hope, he says he has two things. First of all, he has companionship and support from others, doesn't he? He says the righteous are going to surround him. Verse 7, the righteous shall surround me. The righteous ones, the righteous people, your people, God, they will surround me. They will comfort me. They will take care of me. And now not only does he have God, who is as stable as a plot of land, but he has others too. And they're God's people, God's righteous ones. Could it be that some of the reason that we feel so alone is that it's very hard to get to this position where we're willing to actually open ourselves up for help. Maybe you say, I'm willing to do this with God today, but there's no way I'm going to open myself up to others. I'm not going to go request counsel. I'm not going to go and ask for help. I'm not going to admit that things are falling apart. But could it be that you are the one pushing people away from your right hand? Because nobody knows you're in that spot. There's nothing that delights the heart of a pastor more than people coming and saying, can you help? There's nothing. And there's nothing that harms you more than refusing to ask for it. So maybe today you need to say, God, I need help. And I need help from others too. Could it be today is the day where you say, I'm finally going to turn and ask for what I should have asked for for decades. <laughs> Today's the day. Notice he also says, you shall deal bountifully with me. Now this is a, a very interesting phrase he uses. Deal bountifully or deal well kind of gives not quite the right idea. You'll note here I have it's like a weaned child. And that's because this exact phrase is used several times in the Old Testament for that exact picture. Psalm 131, verse 2, I have it up here. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. This picture, which is the same word, the same words he uses at the end of verse 7, is the contrast between an infant child who sees mom primarily as food. Yes, they like mom, but when they're in mom's arms, they they can't be still because mom is food. And so they're always crying out. They're always screaming, especially in this day and age where oftentimes they were malnourished. They're always hungry. They can't just be with mom because they want something from mom versus a weaned child who can just sit and be with mom sometimes, right, moms? (laughs) You know what I'm saying though, right? It's different though. And that's what he's saying is there's a difference here where the child doesn't have to have mom now. He can just enjoy mom sometimes. 
David's saying that that's what God's done to my heart towards him. That, I yes, I've been crying out for help, but what I really need is someone. Because he does need help, doesn't he? That's what he's been saying this whole time, and he's been saying, I need you, I need you, I cry out for help, I cry out for help. And at the end he says, but actually what I need is you. I need to just sit there with you. I need you to deal well with me that way so that I can be calm in that way, like a weaned child. This deal bountifully is that same phrase of being a weaned child. And what's changed his perspective? It's not his actions. He hasn't done anything. It's not his circumstances. They haven't changed. It's this, that he's meditated on God and said, you know what? If I have God, it's okay. And God's flooded him now with help from every angle inside. I want to encourage you with a few closing applications as we end today. First of all, be quick to pour out your heart, your, heart, your full heart to God. You can see that this, that's what David's done. He's held nothing back. God, here's where I'm at. I have no strength, he says. They're stronger than I am, he says. My breath has gone out of me, he says. Talk to God that frankly, that honestly, that openly, because he already knows. Secondly, let me encourage you to rehearse God's care of you. Rehearse God's care of you. God does care for you, and he does it in lots of ways, doesn't he? When you're sick, you go to a doctor. The Bible teaches us to think about that help as actually coming from God. Those are God's hands caring for you. When you have financial trouble, you go to a consultant. And that professional, unbeknownst to him or her, perhaps, is God's care for you. Each of the little graces that filter down to you are from God. It's like this. You, you cross a stream on your path in life. And what God wants you to do is not just to be thankful for the help, but to look up the stream to find the fountainhead. And every time you do that, you'll find God. So be quick to rehearse this kinds of care for you from God. I'm perhaps too familiar with C.S. Lewis's seven-part series on Narnia. I don't know if there's any fans here, but my mom read that to us far too often. It has filtered into just about every dream I've had since the age of four. But my favorite book is one that's not read a lot. It's called The Horse and His Boy. You may not know much about it, but I'll give you a brief synopsis. The story takes place where this young boy finds out very early on that he belongs to a dad who doesn't actually, isn't his real dad. That his dad found him just in a basket in the river and has been mean to him ever since. And the moment he figures out that that man isn't his dad, which he kind of knew all along, he leaves because he finds out that he's actually from another land. So he's journeying the entire book and the, the book itself is a story about how him and this, this, this horse, this talking horse, go through the land trying to escape it. They face all kinds of trouble. They're trying to stay secret and early on a lion chases them to where they have to join up with somebody else who ends up being a companion the whole time. They continue on and they're constantly thrown here or there or hidden. And one time he finds himself in the desert, sleeping among the tombs with jackals howling out in the, the desert and he knows he's dead until another animal comes and chases them away. And he doesn't know what happened, but he knows he's safe. Finally, in the last stretch of the book, he's trying to get out of the land. He's trying to get to safety. He's trying to get to where he's really from. And C.S. Lewis writes that he thinks he's running as fast as he possibly can and he can't go any further. And then... From behind him, another trouble comes. A lion suddenly jumps out of the forest and chases him. 
And what he thought was his fastest is dwarfed compared to what they do. And they outpace everyone and they make it to safety. He finally makes it to safety and he's not full of joy because he doesn't know yet where he quite belongs. And he finds himself walking on a path with a companion at dark. And he's rehearsing all these troubles and describing all the bad things he's been through and saying, then this happened and then this happened and then this happened. He says, then finally a lion chased us. We almost died. And in that moment, the one next to him is the kind of Christ figure of the story of the whole series, Aslan himself, the lion. And Aslan speaks up and he simply says this, I was the lion. He says, when you were found in a basket, you were found in a basket because I pushed you to shore. And that's why you were saved. When you were chased together with your friend, I was the lion who did that. I forced you to companionship. When you were at night on the tombs and the jackals were howling, I was the beast who chased them away. And I was the one who chased you finally into Narnia. I know. I was there. That's in a very real sense what David is saying. It's not that God saw what happened to you. It's that he directed it. And he's there with you. At each step of the path, he knows. He was there. What David is saying is, God, you know, you did this. You're here. I entrust myself to you. There's a comfort in knowing God's care for us like that. God doesn't care for us at a distance. He's with you on the path. So bring your complaint to him. Don't hold back and allow him to minister to you. Thirdly, let me encourage you to rest in God is all you need. Rest in God is all you need. When you rehearse your needs, you know what you also rehearse to yourself? The solutions, don't you? You say, if she would just, that's what you're thinking. You're not just saying, I have a problem. You're saying, and I know what to do about it. If this would just, can I encourage you to pay attention to those solutions that you're rehearsing to yourself? And instead of saying, if these circumstances would all change, and if everything would align perfectly, and if my health would only this, or we can only finally, to instead rehearse what David is saying here. God, you are the ever-present living one. All caps, Lord. Finally and lastly here, let me encourage you to let others surround you with God's care. And I'll return to the previous encouragement. The part of being surrounded is being open and it's being needy. And that's a hard thing to do, isn't it? But God often cares for you through others. So to shut yourself off from others is to shut yourself off from one of God's major avenues of care. And when you receive that help then, attribute it to the Lord. During this season of celebration, of Christmas celebration, it may be that you come into it half-hearted because of exactly this kind of scenario. Let me encourage you that while the path out is not easy, God is there. He's been there the whole time. What he wants for you to do is just to turn to him in desperation and say, God, I need you. What David says will happen is that you'll be like a little child who can just sit and be in God's presence. And that's what God wants for you. We don't know how this situation ended for David. And I think that's helpful for us. Because in that moment, what you don't want to hear is this. Oh, it'll all work out in the end. Right? What you want is just someone to sit there with you. And God wants to sit with you. Will you sit with him? When you're ready to give up, turn to God and find him this kind of a savior. 
Let's pray, and then I'll turn it over to whoever's next to me. Let's pray.